definitely welcome Jennifer Weisswolf. This is going to be loud. I could probably do this without the microphone. I keep it small. Oh, do you need oh. it for the podcast? Please. Okay. <laughs> this is going to be loud there. All right. Well, I guess we're competing with the doctors. So I'm glad we at least have all of you here. Um, I know a lot of you, so this is actually kind of fun. And we can make this a, um, a discussion. I mean, I have a little bit of a story that uh, I like to tell about how I got involved and why it matters, why this issue matters to me and why I hope after hearing about it, it might matter to you too. Um, but I won't talk for too long because I would actually love to have a conversation with all of you about it. So with that, periods are in public. Um, the whole, my whole story in this, I mean, it's not like menstruation hasn't been around for ever, but my whole story in this really actually only started um, almost three years ago. Um, it was on New Year's Day, January 1st, 2015, and um, I have this kind of crazy tradition that I do each year on New Year's Day. Actually, I think that there might be somebody in the audience who's done it too. Um, Coney Island Polar Bear Swim. Yes? My, well, Laura does I it. I know, she, she does. She does it with her dad. Oh, uh, okay. I stay home. You stay home. You're dad. the wise one. Okay. Yes. So anyway, well, this is something that I do every year with a group of friends. Um, and for, for all of us, it's a way... I think really to sort of jolt ourselves into the new year and kind of create a sense of purpose. And um, we'd gone into this this particular New Year's Day in 2015, I think really actively looking to the universe for some purpose, so much so that we actually, we dressed as Wonder Woman that year. And we went with these full-on Wonder Woman capes and bathing suits and glitter. And, um, and, and we swam and it was a very, it was a very kind of radical swimming day. But uh, when I came back home, uh, I wanted to, I was sharing, I was editing and sharing my pictures, and that was, uh, I was on Facebook, and when I was posting the pictures, um, through my, in my news feed, I saw this, this flyer that these kids in my community were collecting tampons and pads for our local food pantry. And... Um, I always think it wasn't that much of a mistake that this all happened on New Year's Day. Like, if it was just some kind of, like, mucky March day, I might have just seen it and kind of brushed it off. But because I had all this adrenaline, when I saw this flyer, I was just, um, it, it was truly, it was like a light bulb moment. I don't really know how else to describe it. it. It was just so shocking to me. It was just really kind of shook me to my core to think about it. And I just kind of immediately started, um... Googling and researching like like mad. I just really needed to understand why these kids do something I didn't know. Why I had never thought of this before. It made sense in theory that if menstruation could be challenging at, at times for people with the means to manage it, that for somebody who is marginalized or low income or otherwise, um, I don't know, lacked agency or the ability to truly have the access to the education and the products and the health services that they needed, this could really be a problem. So I started researching it, Googling, and, um, and, and it just, it was like day turned into night, night turned into the next day, and I sort of never stepped away from my computer. And at that time, this was January 1st, 2015, um, the things that I learned kind of ended up guiding a lot of the way I started envisioning this issue um, over the next, over the past few years. So. 
The first was that this wasn't a surprise to everybody. This was actually an issue that was being addressed um, and managed in kind of very creative ways um, in, in other parts of the world, including in the global south and parts of Africa, um, where it was true that upon puberty, girls were having extreme challenges with the ability to continue their education. Part of it was menstruation and the ability to manage it, whether it's because they lacked the support in the supportive environment, whether it was the cultural and religious um, uh, beliefs that, that guided their communities that were otherwise um, detrimental or, or, or could marginalize their you know, their health and well-being, and certainly it was also a lack of access to the kind of products that enabled them to manage their periods. Um, but what I also learned at the time upon, you know, the things that I was reading was that there was this incredible kind of, you know, really, really creative innovation and entrepreneurial spirit about addressing the problem. Um, and the problem was indeed deemed both uh, human rights issue and public health issue um, by the United Nations and the World Health Organization. So I started, I, I was really, really curious at that point, though, as to whether it was a problem here in the United States. It seemed very likely it could be, but nobody was really talking about that aspect of menstruation. If they were talking about it at all, which, which wasn't that frequent or wasn't that popular, in terms of just being part of the popular mainstream media discourse. Um, they certainly weren't addressing whether for low-income people um, this was a challenge. And then there was this particular essay, though, that stood out that had been published just a couple of months prior, and it was written by the Brooklyn-based um, writer Jessica Valente. Um, and she had a column for The Guardian at the time, and uh, she published a piece called The Case for Free Tampons. And it, it actually made a lot of the policy arguments that are being made now about um, the fairness and equity in um, not having menstrual products be subsidized or sales tax exempt. And this particular essay drew such a vitriolic response from, you know, sort of from the bright parts of the world. And it was really, you know, really kind of crass, nasty stuff. And it, it, it really struck me that the intersection of misogyny and poverty was was a deep part of the challenge in addressing menstruation. Um, so with all that, that was kind of all swirling around in my mind on this very first day of the year. And um, the best I could do with it at the time was to kind of process it into an essay. That was, that was the way I came up with just for kind of collecting my thoughts. And I wrote this piece. And um, again, all that New Year's resolution and adrenaline didn't I didn't just write it and put it down I thought well who should see this who's the most important person who would see this who would who would care as much as I do at this moment who would want to help tell this story and I decided at the time that it was um, Nicholas Kristof who's a columnist for the New York Times so I sent it to him cold and uh, much to my surprise he wrote back and offered to publish the piece um, so that was that was sort of the start for me of of creating a platform for talking about this issue and trying to elevate it into the national discourse. Um, right away, I, I had signed up to participate in a collection. The, so these kids were doing this collection drive. And so I signed up right away to help, help them collect donations. Um, and I was very happy to be part of that. 
But, you know, by day I'm a lawyer and I work for a legal advocacy organization and think tank and as affiliated with um, NYU School of Law. And uh, my head just really started going to both opportunities for policy and, and the idea of systemic change. A, a collection drive just didn't seem to me to be enough of, of a way to address something that could otherwise be... Um, you know, a deeper societal problem that called for a deeper societal exploration, not just a solution, but really understanding about why it is that um, menstruation would be so, we know that it's so marginalized, but how it could actually result in something that was solvable, but just not being addressed because it wasn't being talked about. So, um, as I started to kind of map out in my head how to do that, um, I think that this has become one of the more interesting parts of the, the story to me, especially as I've looked back on it and, and written this book, um, was the idea to put the issue into the frame of equity versus health versus rights, all of which I think are essential pieces of the story and and certainly things we want our policymakers to be thinking about. But in terms of forging a domestic agenda here at home, struck me at the time, and still continues to be, that we live in a society where half of our lawmakers and population don't deem basic health care a human right, and certainly don't um, you know, find the statement that women's rights are human's rights to be, to be exceptional. So it, it, it struck me that equity and participation um, might be core enough American values that that could be a winning frame to get policymakers, <clears throat> excuse me, to want to to be willing to address this issue. And the equity and participation arguments sort of cut two ways, and that is this whole idea of menstrual equity, which is that for those who who, who menstruate, lack of access to products and the, and the kind of support that they need creates a barrier to participation and that in of itself um, is a challenge to equity. But so too do we all lose, I think, in society when any one of us is unable to participate fully. And I thought that that sort of two-way two -way street could, could be um, a compelling argument for advancing policy change. So that's, that's, that's a bit of my story, I guess, of how, how this all started for me. That was early 2015, and uh, what I took it upon myself to do at that time was to, was to develop this policy agenda, um, focus first on the economics of menstruation that I hoped would get to a broader conversation, um, again, around societal and cultural views of menstruation, of... Um, of, of, of creating, I guess, this broader, this broader argument of participation um, that as, the, as time went on and as the past, you know, sort of two years have unfolded with the way our politics are presenting themselves now, it's almost, um, I'm really glad it took that shape and took that frame because here we are kind of in this most treacherous fight for our lives and our well-being, and our bodies, and our stories, and our reality in this in this political and cultural environment, and that was really kind of what the what the heart of this menstrual equity story was. 
So I'd, I'd love to actually tell you a little bit about what that policy agenda has looked like over the past two years, um, which again is sort of the, the heart of this, this book, is a story of how a movement really materialized uh, and came together over the past, over, over a short period of time, basically, um, this policy agenda has unfolded from 2015 through the present and continues to unfold. Um, but how all, all this other kind of organizing and innovation has intersected it um, has brought us to this place where we really are talking about periods in a very public way um, and in a very productive way, in a very political way, in a very proactive way. Um, but the policy campaign um, really did start to unfold during this same time frame I'm talking about. So in, um, I started, like I said, thinking about it as an economic issue, and I was aware that in other places in, around the world, the um, issue of sales tax and whether menstrual products were rightly uh, exempt from sales tax was a fight that was being waged. In fact, um, in 2015, in the summer of 2015, Canada, after um, the several decade campaign, uh, managed to eliminate its national goods and services on with tax on menstrual products, which was basically their, their, their national tax. Um, and that seemed to me to be a ripe starting place for, for forging an agenda here in the United States. It wasn't something anybody was talking about. It seemed kind of a pretty simple way to get started if we were going to get legislators and policymakers to start thinking about or talking about or being willing to talk about menstruation and in particular the economics of menstruation, uh, that sales tax question, aka the tampon tax, I assume people here know that phrase and have heard it. Anyone who comes to a period talk generally probably has heard some of this before and knows some of this story. But, um, but the tampon tax was the place to start. Um, I've always kind of joked about it that it had, it had the chance to be bipartisan in a way that I think a lot of other issues around women's bodies don't because in this case, we were going to force Republicans to, to say which out loud, which they hated more, women or taxes. And um, somehow they, they landed on taxes, even though I don't really think that's true. Um, but in any event, this campaign kicked off here in the United States in the fall of 2015. Um, I was fortunate to get Cosmopolitan Magazine to join me in um, launching a petition. The idea was to create this national petition because here we were going to have to do this campaign state by state. Um, because that's how sales tax is levied. Here in California, you all still have the tampon tax. I'm sorry to tell you, the legislature um, was the first to introduce legislation in 2016, in January 2016, passed unanimously both the Assembly and the Senate, and Governor Brown vetoed it. Um, and that was 2016. But in this two-year time frame, um, as menstruation has been making headlines, as activists have been drawing attention, uh, whether it's women who are bicycling across the country to raise awareness, whether it was somebody running the marathon, the London Marathon, free bleeding to raise awareness, or used it as a, a, a platform to raise awareness, whether it's been social media campaigns, whether it's been product advertisements, whether it's been even um, our esteemed President of the United States, while as a candidate calling out menstruation for kind of good dose of derision early on in the... Um, election season when he, if folks remember, called out Megyn Kelly for having blood coming out of her wherever. And uh, there was a big social media backlash. Um, all of that led to this place where there was real fuel and energy to, to, to promote this policy campaign. And uh, anyway, in the time since the tampon tax 
started to make waves. Um, 24 states have actually introduced legislation, and four have gotten it done in just two, just two legislative sessions. And of the four that have gotten it done, really worth noting that two were laws signed by Republican governors in Florida, Governor Scott in Illinois, Governor Rauner. Um, the tampon tax was what I kind of envisioned the place to start. Like I said, it was kind of, it's kind of light. Like it doesn't require large leaps of empathy, certainly not empathy for, again, this intersection of misogyny and poverty. You don't have to really put yourself in the shoes or the place of somebody who's poor or marginalized or lacks agency or is otherwise, you know, um, somebody from, with whom you might not, typical legislator might not think is their, their core constituency. Um, but going for this broader question of access and understanding of, of people's life circumstances was, was always part of the agenda. The tampon tax was just a way to get there or a way to at least get legislators comfortable saying words like periods and tampons and menstruation and thinking about the fact that this is, this is a, a process and a bodily function that half of their constituents are managing, whether they're paying attention to that or aware of that or not. Um, but the access question was always intended to be sort of the next linear step in this, but this, this kind of cool thing happened, which was New York City, which is where, which is where I um, work, um, stepped up pretty quickly and said, we want to take on this access question. Not only are we not even in a position to take on the tax, because we don't levy sales tax, we don't even, we, we, we want to go much further than that. So I started working with the city council simultaneously with this with the tampon tax campaign um, to put forth um, what we thought was going to be the, the best and most winnable agenda to ensure access to menstrual products. And that ended up morphing into three, three bills um, that would mandate free menstrual products in all of the city's public schools. Um, correction facilities and shelters. So really actually getting to those populations where where the need was great. Um, and to make a short story even shorter, in about 12 months time, the bills were researched, introduced, debated, passed, signed by the mayor of New York. And they're actually really the first and most comprehensive of their kind in the world. There are other, there are many other nations that have had progressive menstrual policy um, I think that folks have been, I, I was surprised to learn this in my research, Kenya um, did away with their national tax on menstrual products in 2004. So we're hardly, we're hardly the first ones there. Um, but New York's were really the first that were um, explicitly focused on a diverse range of populations um, and rather dogmatic in the ability to enforce them. Um, and since those laws have passed, that was 2016, um, folks should know that California, especially now, Governor Brown gets to redeem himself a little bit. California just last month passed a law that uh, requires the free access to menstrual products in all of the state's public schools. So that's really sweeping and huge and, and a, great, uh, a great advance. The state of Illinois did the same. Colorado did the same for state prison system. And this has even been introduced at the federal level now. There are bills in both the House and in the Senate. I'm in the Senate, I'm going to keep giving you California trivia. Uh, Senator Harris um, is the sponsor of a bill that would, that um, 
called the Dignity for Incarcerated Women Act, and it has a lot of provisions that um, address the needs of federal um, inmates, but among them was access to menstrual products, and that led to uh, the Department, the Bureau of Prisons, which is under the U.S. Department of Justice, uh, introducing or putting forth a guidance, which is basically a written rule, not enforceable, but still in writing, that requires menstrual products for federal inmates. And I think what's particularly notable about that is it was signed by the U.S. Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, who, yes, yeah, it's like, that's, that's where we're at now. That's how, that's how normalized this has become. That's how mainstream this has become as a policy matter. It's, what's, what's a super interesting sidebar to it, too, is when the Dignity for Incarcerated Women Act was introduced by um, Senator Harris, along with Senators uh, Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren, this past summer, and actually none of this is in the book, because this all happened after I was pencils down on the book, too, which is too bad, because it's a, fun, it's, it's a really kind of fascinating story to unpack. But they introduced this bill, again, wide-reaching um, criminal justice policy, addressing things like inmates being shackled during labor, delivery, um, visitation with children, phone calls, all kinds of things that really have disparate impact on, on um, women inmates. But when the, when, the law, when the bill was introduced, the headline was free tampons and pads for federal prisoners. It was in the Huffington Post, and I called the reporter to ask her, I was just curious why she led with that, because there was so much to the bill. And she said, well, I led with it because that's the no-brainer. That's what everybody supports. That's, that's the, that's the feel-good piece of the bill. And I thought, wow, that actually is a huge piece of this story. The idea that when I first started Googling this on January 1st, 2015, I found so little positive, productive discussion not just of menstruation writ large, but of menstruation really as a political and policy agenda and how as a society we might think about ways to ensure that our laws reflect the reality of the population who live by them. And if menstruation was never reflected, well then of course we were going to wind up with these archaic sales tax laws that didn't consider menstrual products. And of course we were going to wind up, I mean, the book goes into a lot of detail, and I'm happy to answer questions and talk about it, but about how so many of our laws do not reflect the reality that half the people who live by them menstruate. And it's everything from um, our tax code, our federal tax code, um, doesn't consider menstrual products any sort of necessary or medically necessary item. And the practical result of that, among other things, is that you can't use your flexible study account dollars to purchase menstrual products because of the way they're classified. And if they were classified differently, you could. Um, and basically what I do in the book is go through law by law and, I, and look at them through that lens and come up with new ideas for how we consider menstruation in our lawmaking. But the story that got us there, me there, to at least be able to have the impetus to tell this story was was initiating these campaigns around access and sales tax. Um, but again, it was happening all in the context of so much storytelling, this explosion of storytelling around menstruation, so much so that from, at least in my own little vision of this, of this work, I had my own revelation on New Year's Day, January 1st, 2015, 
full year to the day later, New Year's Eve 2015, um, NPR called 2015 the year of the period. And it, that was kind of like exponentially meaningful for me because it was the year of the period if you lived in my little world. My daughter's here, she knows. Our house was like nothing but period talk for that year since then. Um, anyway, that, that's, I just kind of want I like to start with that because I think that understanding what this policy agenda looks like, what it's meant to, what it's meant to me to be part of it, and how it's been part of this, this um, broader discussion and broader activism around menstruation that's gotten us to this place that we're at 2017 now where, again, we see our bodies and our stories and our narrative just so undermined, misunderstood, ignored. This whole, this whole past couple of weeks of hashtag me too and discussion about sexual assault and that the actual shock of people that this has just been happening and this is what most women consider to be normal. Not normal in a normalized way, but just normal and this is the shit we put up with all the time. Um, periods are the same way. Nobody's given them credence in the broad ways we manage our society, the rules and laws by which we live. And anyway, this is my charge now, is to change that. And you know, I hope that upon reading this book, other people will feel as you know, furious and motivated as I have been these past couple of years, um, because because it just matters. It just matters. When I when I was writing this book, when I was in the throes of writing it, um, it, it was written pretty fast. Um, the publisher had actually come to me. I hadn't intended to write a book, and the publisher came to me in June of 2016 and said, "This really is a book. You know, this really is a story to be told." I said, well, I don't know how to write a book. Like, maybe you should find somebody else to tell the story. They said, no, no, we really think you need to tell this story. And I said, you're right, I do need to tell this story. So basically, I started writing this book in August, and, you know, here we are. It's about a year later. Um, but I was really heavily in the throes of writing um, in the weeks leading up to the election, the weeks following the election. And in the weeks following the election, I thought, oh, my gosh, who's going to care about this anymore? How is this going to even matter? We have this giant ocean of, of, of degradation to our democracy, to our bodies, and to our lives that we're going to be struggling to fight. Is the tampon tax going to, like, who's going to care? Um, then I actually, I took a break from writing for a day, went down to the Women's March in D.C., um, and when I saw so many people holding signs that were focused on menstruation, it was a reminder that this president is actually the biggest offense to to all of this. This is the root. This is where it all starts. And this actually matters as much as everything. This actually is everything. Um, and I see it playing out now left and right in all these all these ways. Again, we're talking about our experiences and why, why they haven't been part of the national narrative. Um, and why, why I think we're so committed at this point. It seems like something's clicked and changed. I don't know. Maybe that's a little too hopeful. But um, I don't, I don't want to you know, burden myself with pessimism. I really do feel like this campaign has demonstrated we can find common ground left and right, even if they're doing it for the wrong reasons. I don't really know the reasons why they're doing it. Maybe they found it to be a safe place to claim some feminist cred, but they're listening. They're using some of our language. We're getting buoyed by this by the fact that we can win something. We're not just pushing back against the worst things, but we're actually able to win. 
Um, for all those reasons, I'm so glad that I had to sort of force myself through this process to create that book at those very dark times. Because now here we are, and I think this is part of our roadmap going forward. And with that, I'm going to stop talking and ask people to please just join in the conversation, whether it's asking questions about policy or telling your own period stories, whatever place you want to be at in this conversation, it's a great conversation to have. So bring it on. Oh, I love that. Yes. We'll start with one, two. I'm just going to grab a tissue. I told you. I'm listening. I'm just digging out a tissue. So, um, oh, I don't even have any. Are there any tissues here? Oh, tissue. Oh, thank you. Sorry. Sorry, podcast. Just say that. Um, <laughs> so, um, I'll talk while you're getting that tissue. My question. Um, so, I'm big on the silence issue, and I'm really watching this, uh, you know, harassment being blown wide apart. And, you know, I need a hill you can think of. The, the, the fierce <laughs> wall that met Anita Hill, and now where we are with this like Me Too thing, and this virtue signaling coming through these men, mm-hmm. you know, it's like crazy. We're on your side, you know, it's like, it's very interesting, the whole phenomenon. And um, I just throw out there, Cosmopolitan has some great things on YouTube, really well-acted um, scenarios. And a lot of stuff, I'm a writer, I can't even articulate the kinds of harassment they show a scene as a, a bartender, they show a photographer, they show a different, a doctor. Um, and I was up all like really late late night watching these things because they're really well acted, they're not um, patronizing at all. And you know, we're just in this really exciting place in culture where we can, like all these things that have been silent, it just seems like really a moment, a such an exciting moment for young people to start talking about things that, you know, it's no longer, there's nothing tasteless anymore. Everything's, you know, real. <laughs> and um, I just am really excited about that. So I'll turn Oh, I, it's, it's, it's kind of amazing because I'll find it on social media and stuff, by and large, I always joke if this was polling, if I had the money to do a poll, if anyone wants to fund a poll, I would love to because I always, my joke is, we, we're probably polling at like 95% approval rating. You know what I mean? There's very, very little pushback. The pushback will come, and the pushback is always so trite. I don't know. People will say, like, this is private. Why are you talking about it? Well, why? Why? Why is it private? I mean, stop and think about it. Why should it? What, what's private about it? I mean, I'm announcing to you all that I have to blow my nose. Um, it's really the same difference. And the idea that we can... We can educate and create a generation that feels similarly is how we're going to progress and menstruation is almost the easiest place to start in some way because there you peel back the layers and there's no there there i mean there's lots of superstition there's lots of religious dogma and there's lots of um you know kind of odd storytelling but at the end of the day it's just part of our, 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 our bodies that once you get to that it just becomes so easy people have asked me if it's hard to go into a room especially of male legislators and, and, and talk to them or talk at them about it and it's actually it's the opposite of hard it's so easy because if they're uncomfortable I use the they don't stay uncomfortable for long because you just look foolish if you're uncomfortable for long because really like what it, it's, it's how y'all got here. Like, how, how, could, how could you be that uncomfortable? 
But I usually, what I'll do, and it's quite deliberate now, I, I will use whatever few moments of discomfort they have to grab all the power away. Um, I will own the conversation, I will own the vocabulary, I will set the tone, and by the time they catch up, they have to do it on my terms. Um, and yeah, it's kind of thrilling, actually. Um, it, it, it gives you a rush. But it doesn't actually happen that much. I have to say, that's, that's not been an experience that, by and large, people won't talk about it. They do. So this brings me to my question, because I see all this biological focus as really just a way of, of exiting us out of the economy. And because the poor are most attacked by these policies, um, it's being female means being out of the economy. So how can we use the work you're doing, which is less controversial and a real score, how can we use that to get into planning our parenthood? That's a great question, and it's something I actually, I, I thought about a lot. There's a whole section in the book, particularly around reproductive rights, but this is true about actually all a, a, an array of economic and other sort of, again, participation questions. What I've found and what I'm actually working with, particularly with pro-choice organizations, to do, it's going to sound a little counterintuitive, but it's to keep them at bay right now. Because this, we, for whatever array of reasons have led this to become as neutral as it has, bringing, bringing that stuff, bringing anything that is otherwise traditionally polarized in, whether it's sex ed, whether it is... Insurance whether it's contraception, whether it's abortion, um, it's premature right now, I think. I think we need to build a little bit more credence in this place. Like, I've heard, I've heard really right-wing legislators kind of accidentally use very progressive language when they've talked about why they're introducing uh, a bill related to menstrual access or menstrual affordability. So I'd rather just kind of let that simmer a little bit and let them suddenly realize they're speaking or speak and, and then hope that we could meet them. We could meet them. I, we're never going to meet them on abortion. I don't even know if we'll meet them on contraception, but maybe some education aspects. It doesn't California have a lawsuit going through now on um, equal rights and the insurance contraception issue? I just was reading something. I don't know. I don't know. Folks here in California might know better than I do. I was reading they've thrown that up as um, um, equal access. Just, you know, there, there's some way in on that, and then you know it's true. They, you know, it shouldn't. It's just true. Well, the equity frame becomes, I think, really powerful for all this stuff because the equity frame is, by definition, also an economic frame. Um, and it was interesting. I just did an interview uh, last week with the Wall Street Journal, which is not a typical outlet for this issue or, or for me. Um, and they really wanted to focus on economics, and that was the case I made, that equity is an economic issue. Um, I could share that piece, but it's, um, it, it, it helps. It helps create a path to those decisions. Holly, what do you think about that? You should, you should explain a little bit of your background, too. Um, I, I wrote a book about contraception, so sorry, I've had a cold. <laughs> I got tissues. <laughs> But you're right. Um, I have. I don't know about on the policy side. That's not really my thing. But in terms of um, equal responsibility and equity, we have seen that conversation for perception more. I would say in the last year than probably ever before, um, because a lot of younger women now feel that their male partner should take on more responsibility for preventing pregnancy. 
So that might be using cognitives. But later on, in a relationship, there's also more interest in vasectomies too. Um, and you know, I think that's interesting because obviously men have three options of contraception, whereas women have, I think it's like 15, 16 right now. Um, a lot more, basically. And of course, up until this point, we've really talked about it in terms of being women's responsibility because we get pregnant and they don't, which is a big thing, right? Um, and we can get pregnant and we have to deal with that and make more work. Um, but I do think it's coming up the equity side is how they talk about contraception, and I would be interested to see what happens with organisations and policy about that because there's definitely a lot more younger people seeing it as an equal responsibility issue and why should women have to take on the burden of the money, the organisation, the side effects, the remembering, um, everything. I think I'm recalling the case, the basis of it now is the, the right to practice your religion versus the right to equity in, in, in our mm. society. Oh, okay. Because get up. Yeah. I think you had a question next? Yes, I did. So my question was in regard to how the FDA sees contraception. Uh, <laughs> We're getting uh, exactly all of it now. Yeah. And, and tampons, you know, um, categorized under medical devices. Yeah. But then they're not covered when it comes to so this insurance is, or insurance, you know. This is part of the thing that I discovered that that's both infuriating and motivating at the same time. So it's true. The FDA, which is another federal agency, the Food and Drug Administration, classifies menstrual products, tampons, and some pads as a class two medical device. It's just a term, it, and it has to it, it it has to do with the requirements for testing and transparency. Um, class two is gives very little uh, protection or li very little. I don't know what the word is like credence. Well, Basically, it means that there's very quite, oh, no. yeah no. It's, so it's a very weak protection, and we um, it, we're not entitled to know what what the ingredients are in these products. There's a lot of limits about the testing and who gets to know about the results um, and. Basically, it's a pretty weak place for them to be. One one advocacy, if, if under the umbrella of menstrual equity, to argue for menstrual safety, they should be a class three medical device. Um, and it would require much more rigorous testing and transparency. That said, so that's the FDA. There are several federal agencies and federal regulations that incorporate menstrual products None of them are consistent with each other. None of them even speak to one another. So the tax code was the example that I mentioned before. And actually, I'm going to read. If it's, I'm going to grab the book. I'm going to read the tiny piece out of it because this is. I know the page actually. Cause I now started reading it, so I know it's, the index does work. It's page two fifty one. Oh no! Shoot, that's the only thing. Um, I'll find this really quickly. What, what the what the um, what the what the FDA with the tax code actually says about it is is fairly horrifying, okay? So this is what the tax code says. Tampons are feminine hygiene products made with soft absorbent materials that are designed to control the flow of menstrual blood by being inserted into the vagina during a menstrual period. Although these products were classified as cosmetics for most of the 20th century, in 1976, the U.S. Food and, and I'm quoting from the, the IRS, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration reclassified them as medical products as they are, quote, intended to affect the structure of any function of the body of man or other animals, and which is a product, 
does not achieve any of its primary intended purposes through chemical action within or on the body, blah, blah, blah. Okay, while the FDA classifies tampons as a medical product that must be tightly regulated, not tightly regulated at all, and stringently tested, not stringently tested at all, the IRS views tampons differently. Who's the IRS? Are they doctors? I mean, like, where did, this, where did, where did the tax experts come up with the, the idea that they could have a different position um, on what menstrual products are and what they're used for to the tune of it being detrimental or not economically advantageous to the people who actually buy them. That tax code definition, that very flip decision of the IRS to do what it wants versus the FDA means, again, that we're not entitled to actually have the benefit of using pre-tax dollars to buy these menstrual products. OSHA, which is the um, Occupational Safety and Hazard <coughs> Agency, um, which also regulates um, workplace and uh, restrooms, requires, for example, that there be products to wipe yourself, clean your hands, dry your hands, but not menstrual products. It's not that they don't know menstrual products exist, though, because if you've ever wondered, and I have, why they're the little bins with the, the wax, you know, the paper, that is regulated by OSHA because they are concerned about the transmission of bloodborne pathogens in employees who clean bathrooms. So they're aware that periods get dealt with in restrooms and they want to protect workers in restrooms, but they don't actually consider the products that people use, even though they regulate the provision of other products. So there's actually, so this is, this is again, this is this whole idea that menstruation has never been part of our our lawmakers' mindset. Therefore, it's never been part of our policy making. Therefore, our laws make no sense when it comes to menstruation. Um, and that, that should infuriate all of us. I mean, it's not a little thing that happens. It happens to us for a large portion of our lives. And we pay for the privilege. Um, yeah. What category is Excuse me? Hygiene. What do you mean? In terms of all those categories. <clears throat> say cosmetic, I would imagine it. It's so complicated, it so is. wonky. Um, the co- menstrual products were, were regulated as cosmetics That's so weird. before they became a class two medical device in 1976. They actually were entitled to more protection and more oversight, and we would be enabled more transparency if they were cosmetics. Really? Yes. Cosmetics are actually more tightly regulated than class two medical devices. Like soaps and lotions? Mm-hmm. Lip gloss? Mascara? Look at the package. You'll see the ingredients on it. Yeah. No, the testing and the transparency are tighter for cosmetics. And if you read the FDA regs, what it says is that the testing is recommended. It does not say it's required. Nor is it required to be reported. Exactly. <coughs> what is required is essentially that they let you know the warnings and problems that may, you know, take place as a result of utilizing. Well, lawsuits take care of that problem, right? Not really. No. No. It's big. It's 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 ha- it's been a very there were the the period of time where there was the most legal activity going on around this was the late was the 1980s when um, the Procter and Gamble brand of tampon rely was made with some sort of super rayon somebody probably more medical than me could explain what the what what the what it was comprised of but they were they were the, the culprit in the toxic shock 
uh, explosion cases in the 1980s where there were hundreds of deaths. Anyway, there were thousands of lawsuits, and um, yeah, I mean, and they were they were lawsuits that they were individual to people's own damages, so they didn't have far-sweeping effect. That was in the 1990s. Um, there was more investigative reporting that showed that the FDA was sitting on memos that showed um, large traces of dioxin in menstrual products, not as much related to toxic shock as just the entire tampon industry. Um, there's been attempts at legislation to better regulate these products that have gone nowhere, um, basically, till now. I mean, till now. Am I wrong to think that they would self-regulate because of Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I've lost track of the order, so I'm just going to go with the first hand I saw here. Oh, sorry. Uh, so I have a question. Um, the tax issue also include not disposable uh, menstruation items. They're all they're all their sales tax are disposable and reusable menstrual right, right, products. But like, uh, the new legislations are covering non-disposable items as well. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, they're written in a way, actually it's interesting, I haven't actually sort of shaken it out or attempted to buy a cup to see what would happen, um, but they're, 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 they're written to include all menstrual products. Oh. Yeah. So I just want to say I'm really excited to be here. I'm, I'm excited you're excited. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm part of a club in my school called GLI, Girls Learn International, and we're basically a feminist, uh, a women's activist um, group. And uh, we, we started off in the beginning of this year talking about women in developing countries and how they don't have the same products that, like, this, even they don't even have the products as one. And two, um, they're, they're so poor that they have to choose, like, milk over, oh, like, milk for their family over buying menstruation products for them, like, for themselves or their kids. And, like, and so, I was going to start a uh, drive at my school for the people in um, specifically India because that's where uh, that's where uh, my research was focused on. But then I then I um, veered towards like looking at our own community, and I I uh, I just thought about everyone like in our own community, how there's millions of women. I mean, not millions, but thousands of women in California who don't have the same products as we do. And so I was really excited and I, I brought it to my principal and I'm like, okay, like I go to a private school and I'm like, okay, so I have this really exciting idea. I want to start a period drive at the school. And he's like, what's a period drive? <laughs> and I'm like, grab that power, grab that power. And I'm like, no, like, it's really great. We're gonna, uh, I, wanna, I wanna raise, um, collect tampons and pads like they're not like the drive would have like two there would be two reasons like one to destigmatize periods and like the other to rate collect tampons and pads for the homeless woman in Los Angeles. Yeah, and 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 then he's like, why don't you just have a sanitary drive and collect all products? You don't need to. Why do you have to focus on that? And I was really taken back. Like I thought that I was going to be supported by the people around me, and he wasn't. He wasn't. And. Then I went forward with the project, and I ended up uh, in October. In this October, having I setting up a table. My sister Mayorov, she made a made a big poster for me on like a like a whole like cute poster, and we printed out a 
staples and to like the drive period and we ended up raising four thousand seven hundred and four um wow we're in front of walgreens yeah we stayed in front of walgreens and it was so interesting because multiple men came up to, like they like came up to me and, like came back and like wait what is that like wait what exactly what, what do i need to buy and, like that was really cool to see people taking that step like never even oh and there's two like two men came up to me like oh we don't even buy like i don't even buy for my wife like separate guys saying i don't even buy for my wife like here here you go and, like it was just so empowering like you said you see like a trend in 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 America, how like people are becoming more open to towards towards this idea because it really is an idea that you it's a human rights issue like it's a it's, it's a basic rights issue and so I was the teacher who said no oh yeah and and the principal who said no actually came to my drive which was oh like I don't know he, oh the reason why after is it was spoken about and talked to him in my school newspaper, he's like, oh, I don't think the boys would take it maturity. That's why I don't want it to be at your school. And I said, that is the whole point. Yeah, exactly. Good for you. And so, as of right now, I'm still in the works of doing it at my school because I still think it's really important. And I have a bunch of, I, have a, I still have a bunch of teachers behind me. And... I just wanted to share that, and I just think it was really Yay, I'm glad you did share that. That's a great project. And yes, it's, it's really, really empowering to do. I don't know, all I can say is my life has changed for the better <coughs> since I have become aware of this issue, since I've started to fight for it, since I talked to other people about it. And I'm, I always kind of apologize a little bit when I, do, when I talk about the books. I say, once you know this, you can't unknow it. And your life won't be the same. And you know, you may you may become obsessed with me, or you may just may just drive and motivate you. But um, but your life won't ever be the same. So neither will yours, and neither will all the people that you're helping. So thank you. Yes. Um, you should you should say a little bit about who you are too to folks. All right. Um, <laughs> so my name is Rachel, and for I guess since 2013. Um, I've ridden my bicycle a few times across the country for this project called Sustainable Cycles, which holds menstruation gatherings as we ride to the Society for Menstrual Cycle Research Conference, which happens every other year. Um, and so my interest lies a lot in, in the road, in the public roadway, um, and also in menstruation, and just how mobility for people who menstruate, not just economically or socially, but also physical mobility is affected. Uh, so my question is, how much of your work in menstrual equity do you see as, or, or do you see your work in menstrual equity as um, a puzzle piece into equity in general, and that, you know, people who are underserved or who are institutionally oppressed in this world and country, um, not only do they lack menstrual health access, but health access in general, or grocery store access, or nice roads. Um, and just like, I don't know, just like the racial and class undertones of that. I love that question. The answer is, the answer is yes. And I think because the answer, the question was, do I see this as, as 
as a subset or part of this larger picture. I see it as both, actually. So when I started, what's funny about telling this too is it's so young. Like when, it's not like I'm going back like 20 years. When I, when, when I started this two years ago, and when I, when I got involved in this two years ago, I was immediately focused on a menstrual access issue. That seemed quite addressable to me, and I wanted to zero right in on it. As the equity frame began to unfold, I began to see it in this larger picture. And it's only been, but then I was so focused on the policies and, and the, the desire to, to, to win, like the desire to actually get them in motion and get them, get legislators doing what they needed to do, that it was all unfolding very quickly because people were coming on board very quickly and it was just requiring a lot of you know, fast thinking and pivoting. But it's only been recent, and, and then I was doing the book, so I was like, kind of like head down, just writing this book nonstop, and really trying to categorize and catalog as much of the experience as I could. But it's mostly been in the past couple months, and even the more recent couple months, where I've I've become so convinced that this is the ticket, and this is the key and gateway or a pathway to these broader discussions, and, and it's. It shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us that menstruation is the root of it and the best and a really good way to do it. But menstruation triggers all of these discussions about disparity and gender and access and equity and health and and education and opportunity. Like it's all packed into it. And we could do whatever we want with it, quite frankly. There's a lot of directions it could go. I, I mean I've chosen to to, I, I will continue to focus on these on the menstrual policies as they stand right now. These two that have that have already picked up steam: the sales tax question and the access bills. You know, they they they've they've garnered so much attention and interest and positive response that it would be foolish to stop the advocacy. I'm going to keep going with that. All 50 states need to have menstrual products be sales tax exempt. Um, I want to see access bills more broadly. I would love to get to bigger questions about menstrual products, the menstrual product industry, disposable versus reusable products, why we think about them the way we do. That that's one that's one avenue to go with that still touches upon all of these all of the issues that you named. But I do this thing in the book and I'm really, really curious for people's feedback on it too. Like I said, where I take I, I try to look at all of our lawmaking through the eyes well, through the eyes of menstruation, but through the eyes of marginalized perspective, too, um, and say, why is it, how is it that our laws came to be that they don't address this, and how could we fix that? But once we start to think about how we could fix it for menstruation, we're by definition thinking about how we can fix it more broadly. And we can be deliberate about that, or we can see how it unfolds, but I'm fully convinced that this is the root, the heart, of doing exactly what you say. I don't know that I know how it's going to happen or unfold, but this, this, this has to be it. This, this really can be it, and this should be it. It shouldn't, again, surprise any of us. Menstruation is the core of everything. It can be the answer, too. I don't know if that's a good enough, solid enough answer, because I, I can't say that I know how to do it, but I have enough instinct and faith in what the agenda has 
shown so far to know that it could do much more than it's already doing. Do you have a response or a thought back? You look skeptical. Well, I guess, I guess something I've been thinking a lot about is segregation. Um, like I've ridden through, I mean, even here in LA, like our neighborhoods are segregated pretty much. Um, and basically any town that I've ridden through across the United States. Um, and so I'm curious about this. I mean, can we, can, do you see in your work in menstrual equity that same segregation when there's like white space <laughs> and black space or well, white sea space and in a lot of the communities that are being served, especially by the access bills, they're largely poor communities, they're largely communities of color. Um, certainly in the correction environment, um, maybe more, there's a little bit more diversity in the homeless populations from city to city and area to area. And in the low-income schools in New York City, anywhere where we're doing this, it was, um, I mean, they were diverse communities, but they were they were non-white communities, largely uh, in the lower-income public schools. Um, and what what's happening is sure, access to menstrual products isn't solving issues of institutional racism, and not solving by any stretch issues of institutional uh, of poverty, right? But it's at, but it's giving a platform for storytelling. It's giving a platform to be heard. Um, and that in and of itself is a form of empowerment. Um, and what, what I'm learning as an advocate too, not just learning this for the first time, I know it, but I guess I'm experiencing, my voice is, I don't speak for everybody. I, I, I my, my perspective is my own and I, I'm forced to listen to others' perspectives. I can't come in with solutions to communities that I'm not a part of. Somebody asked in one of my talks about how I engage with uh, clergy and, and religious leaders on this because they're a really important voice in destigmatizing menstruation, you know, across every population. And I said, that's really fascinating because I haven't. Um, and I sh and that, what, a, what a great place to start. I can't go into somebody else's religious community and tell them what's right and wrong or that I'm more enlightened or more woke than the, 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 the words they live by. But they can learn to, to have those conversations within their community. So I think the same thing, though, is happening with this policy making is it's giving, uh, it's shining a light on and giving a platform for that kind of empowering um, self-narrative. And again, that's not the answer, that's not the end game, but it is part of the process. Um, and I will, I'm heartened by that. I guess that's as much as I can answer of it now, but it is part of the process because all of this too is a process. You know, the other question I've asked a lot, so if anyone might want to ask it today, I might preempt you by saying that I get asked a lot about gender and gender fluidity and gender spectrum and why, how, is it a challenge to talk about menstruation through the lens of gender? Um, and, you know, part of the answer is yes. Part of the answer is we would all learn to do better by, I think, being more open to how we consider gender. 
certainly in our policy making. But then, I, but people say, but you say women, and you say women and girls. And I'll say, well, you know, sometimes you have to do certain things to win a law being passed. And it's not that I'm excluding anybody or throwing anyone under the bus, but I want to win this stage and have the platform for you to be able to then share your story. But you're not going to do it, we're not going to get there if we feel we have to do it all at once and all in the first bite at the apple. We have to pace ourselves and understand that social change is generational, it takes time. And I think that's where the left loses a lot, quite frankly, is this idea that if we don't do it all at once, we shouldn't be doing it, or if we're leaving somebody out, we're making a mistake. And I think I'm a little more pragmatic than that, and I want to make these advances and hope that they set us up for the next level of discussion. Yes. And isn't there still so much education in terms of explaining, you know, what different terms mean in, in that space? Tons. I mean, I'm still learning. I'm, I'm learning as I go. I'm a little bit of an old dog even. So I, I've, I've learned a lot over the past two years. Um, and I think we could all sort of, I, I, I think vocabulary matters. I think language matters. I think listening matters. I think letting people tell their stories their own stories matter. Um, so, yes. I mean, I guess just the answer is yes. I mean, I don't pretend to have the answers to all of this. I'm just somebody who's really trying to delve into these bigger, these broader questions through this lens of menstruation because I think it is so ripe for forcing a lot of these conversations. Yes. Um, I just, what you're talking about, how like, the pragmatic side and kind of like taking one step at a time. It really reminds, I just graduated from college, and it really reminded me of like two separate like kind of worlds. So I was, I went to University of Maryland, and it was a very big like Jewish population and like Orthodox Jewish population. Um, and so I came with a lot of friends there, and then I was in art school there, so I had this other kind of group of people. And so I noticed with my more like, I guess you'd call them like left friends, but I mean, I was in conversation with them how, but they kind of, so I, I learned a lot from them, and it was super interesting because I was always in a kind of more like sheltered place, and like I appreciated the like open conversations. But I also realized that like it's it was very hard. Like like you said, how like it's hard when it's like all bundled up together. That like almost everything, every discussion we had, it, it had so many layers to it. So that like. It didn't really give anybody on the say with my my more Jewish like conservative friends a chance to even like swallow it, and then I just cut them off immediately. And like I and I and like I want I wanted to get to those people in some way, but not in a way that like will just shut them off because then like what is the point of even like having a voice and like screaming out loud and like the people just think you're crazy, but like you have a real point. And the really interesting thing, I, I, I agree with that, and I, 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 I appreciate that greatly, but the really interesting thing about menstruation is that you can, you can do both at the same time a little bit. You can, it, it creates this place where you can have discussions and, and go to quarters you wouldn't normally go to, and, presume of, and, and if you could do it without alienating people, you actually create a very giant new space. I guess that was my question, like how, where, like what is the balance? Because, yeah, how do you, I guess, uh, yeah. I don't know the answer other than that 
it kind of provides a little bit of natural balance. I mean, just the way I'm talking to you all today is how I've talked to people, right. whether they're a legislator, whether they're a group of students, whether, you know, any audience at all. And it basically works. I mean, I don't think anything I'm saying anyone will find too too alienating. It's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to find exception with some of it. It's it's all fairly straightforward. So I guess that's the answer. It's just as being as straightforward and um, open and listening, letting people ask questions, letting them be uncomfortable, giving them a little bit of space if they're uncomfortable, asking them some questions. Um, but it's surprisingly not challenging. I wouldn't have thought that before I started. Before I started doing this, my daughter could attest. Maybe you should ask a question too. Um, I, I, I had never said these words as many times in the past three years as I've, you know, in the 47 years leading up to them. So, two more questions. Two more questions? Sure. Um, so the, I think this moment. I just, you know, I'm on the way up here. I heard the most grueling interview I've ever heard in my life from an NPR woman, and I don't have her name. The president of NPR was on. I saw, yeah. yeah. Okay, so the, he had New York Times. But another sexual assault allegation. Yeah. This time so, had NPR. And the bit of she was right on, and I thought, man, that is a really tough interview, and he's hanging in. And obviously, they want to deflect from Wapo breaking the story. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's what it came down to. And she was good on that. But here's a moment. You've got all these men. I mean, every man I know on Facebook, I mean, these are Hollywood writers, and they're like academics on the East Coast editors, you know, New York Magazine, Animal House, even at the National Review. It's like, they're all virtues. They're all saying, not me, not me. Well, we're going, me too, me too. They're going, not me, yeah. not me. So you've got these virtue signalers. So why don't we get them? Why don't we suggest that, you know, we have some represent representational um, force from our gender in management, but we get some wage parity. Do you think now's the time to push those issues we've been struggling for? Yeah. I mean, those are the huge issues, right? And it's like, whenever you see a guy waving his flag like this, it wasn't me, you know, he's usually in a green light position. And it seems like, so I'm doing that. Every time I hear some guy say, you know, isn't it horrible what's happening with all these, you know, well, yes. And wouldn't it be great if we had parity and wage and parity and representation and these kinds of power um, imbalances didn't happen? Wouldn't it be great if we changed the world? Yeah, I mean, we have, we'll have to keep this, this, this energy, I think, live and bottled. We, we have a, we have a Congress and a, and state houses that are not going to get the job done right now. I mean, that's that is true. Um, but we need to keep this narrative and this energy that has been tapped live for sure. But here's the thing: I'm going to turn this back to menstruation right now, because that's what I know about. I can't. I mean, I, I have ideas about lots of no, things. I appreciate your but advice. we are waiting on the menstrual stuff. So again, let's please turn our energy there. We can score more wins, and that again, it gives us another platform to tell our stories and to speak our truth. We have two more, so I'm going to ask somebody who, if there's anybody who hasn't asked a question, and I'm, I'm going to stick around after, I'm happy to chat with anybody, but if there's anyone who hasn't asked a question, since I think we're down to the last one right now. Like somebody's daughter? Oh, well, sure, we'll give it to the daughter. Okay, um, I've never asked you this, but do you have an opinion on putting metrophilics in men's bathrooms? Yes, I do. I've worked, I've worked with lots of student groups that do that. And yes, the idea is that putting men's store products out in all of the bathrooms, whether they're designated for men, women, or otherwise, is a way both to normalize the 
the just the actual visual of menstrual products, what they look like, what they do, what they're for, the idea of creating safe spaces for people who are using men's, a, a room that's designated for men who otherwise have a body that menstruates or need a safe place to take care of themselves. So yes, I'm absolutely in support of doing that. I've been made fun of on right-wing sites for being in support of it too, but lots of, lots of schools in particular. I mean, we're having these entire, I don't know where California stands if you've ever had a bad bathroom bill here, but certainly in many states from Texas to North Carolina, you know, that's become a, a tool or a wedge issue uh, of the right. And um, bathrooms in and of themselves are really interesting laboratories for social justice arguments. Um, it plays out in a lot of ways. One of the examples actually I use in the book is that there's a, there's a federal law passed under the Obama administration that uh, requires changing tables, baby changing tables, to be in men's bathrooms as well as women's bathrooms. And the whole idea of that, again, was that it needs to be regulated to therefore normalize it. Um, but the idea that it is normal, natural for men to be fathers, fathers to change diapers, um, men to have access to the, the, the ability to parent that way, is kind of, it's, it's, it's radical to think that we need laws to normalize that behavior. But that is part of why forging a policy agenda around menstruation was 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 a live wire that it would normalize, be another tool for normalizing and elevating our bodies. Um, but again, the idea even that bathrooms as a social justice platform, um, they most certainly are. For that last question. Anyway, anyone who wants to chat, I'm very happy to chat about the book, and I love the issue. And thank you for coming. When I know that, did it, who won? Did, 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 is it over? Oh, okay. All right. So maybe. anyway, thank you for coming, and um, thank you for being here. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.